we need to do all of the studying that we need to do in the next decade because of the timelines that I pointed out earlier in the conversation. So for me, the question is, how can, we, how can we coordinate an agenda to learn what we need to know about possible options for protecting ourselves from heat risk in the context of the kind of damages that we might be looking at, even if there are only possibilities? The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Tonight we're talking about climate, and uh, this is uh, this is something you know. Weather is the thing that happens short term, and climate is a longer scale uh, thing. Um, I'm, I'm reminded because the um, uh, Edward Bertinsky, who's a past speaker for us, and who actually uh, with his new project, uh, the Anthropocene film, uh, which is coming out uh, later this year. Uh, sponsored uh, this uh, series, sponsored our live stream. We've got members watching via live stream right now. Um, so the trailer for that film is out there now, and I, I recommend uh, checking it out. And it shows uh, the way that um, our activity on this planet has impacted the planet over time. Uh, our industries, our... Um, our, our, uh, our, our pleasures, our wars, um, in, in every way, um, we are now a factor in how the planet changes. And um, so um, it's something, uh, you know, Stuart Brand's line is uh, that we are as gods and need to get good at it. Um, being aware of it and being considerate of it uh, is the first step towards doing something proactive. So um, our, our talk tonight, we're gonna talk about the current situation from a climate perspective and some of the things that we could do, may do, and uh, it's gonna be a, a great chance to, to look at some of those possibilities going forward. Um, our speaker, uh, Kelly Wanzer, is currently executive director of Silver Lining, which is an advocacy group uh, that is working to ensure safety for people and ecosystems by driving options to reduce atmospheric heat. Um, she was previously a co-director of the Marine Cloud Brightening Project at the University of Washington, uh, as which she testified in US Congress uh, for the House Space, and Space Science and Technology Committee. Um, and uh, last year, uh, she was also an advisor to the Ocean Conservanc Conservancy. Um, and on the President's Circle of the National Academy of Sciences. Um, and uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's uh, see what, what we can see uh, from this vantage point about what's uh, in front of us now and in front of us long-term as we look at climate. A big round of applause for Kelly.
Thank you for the applause. You can see I have friends in the audience. Um, I, I'm, I'm really touched to be here, and I want to thank Michael and the Interval team and Long Now. Um, they've become something of a home for me, and they're a big part of the work that I've been doing for the past few years, which I will describe. Um, and just to give you a little background on myself, I'm not a scientist. I spent a couple of decades in IT infrastructure, working in the areas of messaging, security, and networks. So I like complex systems problems, and I'm interested in problems with big implications. And about 10 years ago, I became concerned about climate, and as a sort of passion effort, I uh, got to know a couple of people in the area, Steve Schneider, uh, amazing uh, climate scientist who passed away a few years ago, and Ken Caldera, um, also based at Stanford at Carnegie Institution, who was a mentor of mine in getting to know these topics um, and understanding them a little bit better. So I've been very fortunate being here in the Bay Area um, to get an introduction to this type of work and to get to know some of the preeminent people in the field who I'll talk about in the course of this talk. Um, it's a big topic, and so I, I will be going through some pretty big ideas pretty quickly. So please store up your questions at the end. I've, I've got permission to keep going as long as we need to, uh, as far as questions go. Um, but uh, this is really about um, looking at the severity of our climate situation. So I'm going to start off by uh, characterizing the sort of challenge that we've got um, and sort of lining things up in terms of time and space and then talk a little bit about what people are proposing with regard to you know, near-term options for addressing heat risk. And then finally, I'll talk a little bit about the state of play, um, where we are and where we might need to go in order to understand and pursue any of these kinds of alternatives. So uh, with that said, um, I will start with a, a quote from the uh, eminent thinker, Michael Crichton, um, which is, uh, the planet is not in jeopardy, we are in jeopardy. And so in the spirit of long now, I kind of want to set the context in terms of the planet that we live on. And the planet that we live on is tremendously complex. Uh, I just learned from NPR recently that there are more bacteria on Earth than there are considered to be stars in the universe. So we have this incredibly complex, uh, diverse, abundant system. Uh, it makes it um, incredibly unique in the universe and a little bit difficult to understand and predict, both in the natural system and in the intelligent species that live on it. So we have a complex systems problem, and complex systems problems are characterized by their difficulty in prediction and they're characterized by the emergence, of, the emergence of new things and the death of other things. And so they're quite hard to understand and they're, they're quite hard to manage. Um, but we have some experience in trying to understand and manage complex systems, which I will talk about. But I want to put this in the context of uh, Earth. Um, and this is the temperature history of the planet, a really nice uh, graph. And you can see that it's not totally linear, so the Holocene optimum, which is the period that we live in, um, is stretched out a little bit on the chart. But what you'll notice is that we live in this period of incredible sort of temperature stability. And it's allowed the flourishing of a lot of the diversity and abundance that we know. And so what you see in the picture is you know, a floral composition made by butterflies. 
And so we live in this sort of delicate space that is a combination of uh, st stable temperature. Sorry, I was looking at butterflies and you weren't. <laughs> so here you go. There are the butterflies. Um, so, so all of this abundance and, and delicate diversity is enabled by uh, reasonably stable temperature and rich biodiversity. And you can see from the chart, this is actually quite rare in the history of Earth. And to the best of our knowledge, it's rare in the universe and maybe completely unique. So in, in this sort of spirit of thinking long-term, we have potentially a unique situation in all of history and all of the universe. Um, and it's a delicate one that we're in. And we, as the intelligent species on the planet, have been um, acting on the system. And one of the things that we've been doing is adding material, pulling material from the ground and adding it into the air in a way that's increasing the amount of heat that the atmosphere stores. And so you can see here in these, we've got a couple of charts that show the increases since industrial times of CO2 and methane released into the atmosphere. And the famous Keeling chart that shows the atmospheric concentrations going up. So from pre-industrial times, we've kind of, from industrial times, we've caused this sort of dramatic uptick in what's coming into the atmosphere that stores heat. And then in more recent times, you can see uh, where, that's, where that's gone in terms of the past sort of thousand years and what's projected going forward into 2100. So you can see in this chart here, sorry, my eyes are failing me a little bit. So we've got the past hundred years and we're seeing what that's doing to temperatures. And you start to see this rise, especially in the past 30 years, global average temperature. And then this chart on, the, um, on your right is the IPCC projections of what happens to temperature based on current trends. And the red line is called business as usual, and that's actually the line that we're on. And so the other lines, the blue line, which shows kind of a curve and a stabilization, is the most optimistic assumptions about what we might be able to do to keep temperature stable. And I'm going to talk a little bit later about what they're thinking. But in terms of our state as a complex system, one way to think about the Earth system as a biological system like the human body. And there are a lot of similarities to the human body with a fever, where we can handle some amount of spike in fever, but if the fever continues and it continues to rise, then various parts of the system can start to change and they can start to change permanently. So right now we have a fever, and we want to take a look at what the fever is projected to do to different parts of the Earth system. So these are some of my favorite kids. My uh, godson is the one with the Rubik's Cube, my niece and nephew there. Um, and so around 2050, these kids will be in their 30s, which if you have kids that you know, this will be true of them also. So I want to walk you through some of what's projected for the Earth system around 2050. Um, and, and this isn't primarily based on climate model predictions like we're used to. This is looking at extrapolations of what's happening to the system now. And this tends to come from scientists and researchers that are looking at different parts of the system individually. And so firstly, we have a projection that the amount of forest burn area in the United States will be 10 times what it was in 1970. So today, it's about three times what it was in 1970. And so it's tracking along with temperature rise. So two or three decades from now, we can anticipate lots more forest fires than we have today. Alongside that, going on at the same time, we'll have the effects of heat on the ocean. 
And the one that we hear a lot about is the heat effect on coral reefs. Coral reefs support 25% of life in the ocean, and currently they're being killed by heat stress. They're sensitive to heat, big heat waves are coming. We've lost somewhere between a quarter and a half of the coral reefs in the world already. Um, and they support a big portion of ocean life. So we don't know yet quite what happens when we lose that life. And the ocean is a really complex, highly interconnected system. And so heat stress on the ocean ha could have effects that we can't fully predict in terms of what happens to other life in the ocean and the links between the ocean and the atmosphere. So there's a form of life that grows at the surf surface of the ocean called phytoplankton. And that biological life is quite important to feeding the fish below. Um, and it also handles interaction between the ocean and the atmosphere. I call it the API layer between the ocean and the atmosphere. So it takes in CO2, for, it sort of interprets what's happening in the ocean. It's produced by the, uh, the ocean food web and then it interacts with the atmosphere, it takes in CO2, it releases gases that help form clouds, and it's very important to our system. Currently, phytoplankton, we're losing at a rate about 1% uh, a year, or sorry, a decade. And it's thought that in the past few, since 1950, we may have lost as much as 40% of the phytoplankton on the ocean. So we have to watch for things like this in terms of the whole system. Uh, another thing we have to watch for is collapse of ice sheets in Antarctica. This is a picture by Chris Michael. Chris, where are you? Um, who has many wonderful Antarctic pictures uh, there and, and can talk to you about uh, what it's like to go to Antarctica many times. Um, and so uh, if, if those ice sheets were to collapse, um, as they are predicted when temperatures approach around 1.9 degrees, then we might see some big changes, some big abrupt changes in uh, sea level, um, in sea level rise, and in the nature of the current circulation in the ocean uh, and the major AMOC current. So again, these kinds of things are predicted to happen around 1.9 degrees, and as we saw in our previous chart, we're looking at that around the middle of this century, um, based on what's happening, and. Again, uh, concurrent with those things, we have effects on infrastructure. So one of the things to think about when we think about climate change, it, especially when it comes to discussion of adaptation, is we're likely to have lots of things going on at once. Um, and a lot of our infrastructure was built to a certain range of conditions, of temperature, of wind, of storm surge, of ground conditions. And we're starting to push uh, the climate outside of the conditions um, that some of that infrastructure was built for. So these are two charts. Uh, the chart on the left shows the vulnerability of bridges in the United States. Um, and it's forecast that by 2050, about half the bridges in the United States will be vulnerable, meaning they need re-engineered or they shouldn't be used. Half the bridges in the United States. Um, and the other chart is looking at uh, the vulnerability of coastal military infrastructure, which is something that the military takes pretty seriously. And you can see an enormous uh, amount of vulnerability to flooding of that infrastructure, making possibly rendering some of, some of those sites um, unviable. So, and those are just a couple of examples. And I'm, I'm not here to um, necessarily raise alarms, but what I want to do is say, can we think rationally and logically about the set of conditions that we're facing 
and the kinds of options that we might need to look at. Um, because heat stress is something that creates a number of big changes and big challenges concurrently that could lead to a lot of suffering for people and a lot of irreversible changes in our natural systems. Good news, we're in Silicon Valley, um, and I'm lucky because I know the head of research at the SLAC and lots of people in venture capital and people at Stanford at the Precourt Institute and Berkeley where they're working on energy solutions. And the things that are coming in the pipeline in terms of energy, materials, capturing carbon are extraordinary. I am a techno-optimist, and I believe that by the end of the century, it's absolutely possible that we could have solutions to waste, to energy, to food production, that allow the sustainable, sustainable, healthy, happy life for people on this planet for years to come, and big natural systems that sustain themselves too. So the question is, um, how does that look in terms of kind of the timeline to our solutions? And so this is a chart that's based on IPCC information and the United Nations Environmental Program showing what we would have to do to maintain temperature below two degrees with the tools that we have at our disposal today. So based on emissions reduction alone, um, we would need to start uh, moving to zero emissions by 2030, which is well, 12 years from now. Um, in order to stay below two degrees. Zero emissions, zero net emissions by 2030. So that doesn't look very likely based on what it takes to transition uh, energy production and other things. Uh, so then we introduce, and the IPCC has introduced the notion of removing carbon from the atmosphere. So actively finding mechanisms that can filter the air, bring down carbon, finding more ways to actively plant organic material, trees and other things that will pull carbon out of the air actively. And so what they've done in IPCC projections is, is they've said if we have these things, then it is possible to extend the time that we have to safely uh, stay under two degrees. But you'll notice from the chart that these require starting to implement these negative emissions technologies now. And, and scaling them up very rapidly. And the folks uh, in and around the IPCC will, are, will admit that these things do not exist yet and they haven't, they haven't been fully analyzed. Even the notion of planting trees more aggressively in a, in a certain type of way in order to increase their CO2 absorption. So we have a challenge that we have a pipeline of capabilities that in the future could lead to a zero emissions world um, and, and a way that we can uh, reclaim greenhouse gases from the air. But we don't have them today. Um, typically, it takes about 50 years to transform infrastructure and replace it. So we have some period of time between today and the future where we have a, you know, a, a disruptive set of technologies that we need. Um, where right in the middle of that, that time span that we talked about around the middle of the century, 2050, we have a bit of a problem because that's when big system changes might occur that create a lot of suffering for people um, and, and potentially set off uh, reactions that we can't control. So we're in a position, or we could be in a position a couple decades from now, 
where we've got a sort of more intensive care type situation. And we may need to consider more active interventions for treatment than we would otherwise do. Um, this cartoon also references the sort of disparity between what's being proposed at the global level, the uh, sustainability goals, which include keeping people out of poverty, uh, uh, access to energy, education, and things that make life um, comfortable alongside a sustainable environment and a safe climate. And so this particular cartoon is saying you have to give up on these types of goals, um, and what you really need to do is ratchet back economic growth. And there are people who think that that's the way we're going to accomplish what we need. And so this sort of scenario, that first scenario that I showed you, uh, sort of implies a lot of ratcheting back, um, among other things. But uh, we might postulate that maybe there's a bridge to the future that accommodates human nature, limits suffering, and allows us to get through this period um, where we have a bit of a, a, a societal and technical gap, and we need to keep heat uh, we need to keep heat under control. So this is a quote from Mark Twain. Uh, everybody complains about the weather. Nobody does anything about it. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, what Michael referred to as global, the global long-term weather or climate. Um, and what you can see here, this is a simulation from NASA of clouds and aerosols. So clouds and aerosols are wonderful. Um, they're a really key component of our atmosphere, and they're one of the major ways that the Earth keeps itself cool. So this Goldilocks zone that we live in is, uh, in a large part, created by the fact that our atmosphere not only traps heat, but it reflects light away. And so what you see here are clouds and aerosols bouncing light off the surface and reflecting it back out into space. And this is very much a part of what nature does. And all those uh, cloud and aerosol interactions are created by particles that waft up from the ground. And they waft up from wind on the land, and they waft up from the ocean spray, and they, they uh, mix into the atmosphere, and they stay as particles, and they create clouds, and they do this wonderful cooling of the planet. So the idea um, that arose a few decades ago that was first propagated by Paul Crutzen in uh, 1987, and Paul Crutzen you may know uh, as the person who won the Nobel Prize for identifying the ozone hole and the risk that we had there. Um, so he postulated the idea that we might be able to use this kind of effect for cooling the planet in the context of climate change, and he thought that was something we might need. So the effect that we're talking about, and I'm going to trade for the pointer here for a second, um, so the effect that we're talking about, there are two types of reflective effect that particles can create in the atmosphere. One is when they float up in the atmosphere and light bounces off the particles directly. Um, we tend to call that a scattering, a light scattering effect. And you see mist in the sky and light will bounce off of that back into space. The other type of effect is when small particles mix in with clouds. And what they tend to do, if they're the right type of particle, is they'll attract water from the droplets that are in the clouds to themselves. And they'll, they'll create a larger number of smaller particles within the cloud, making the cloud whiter and, and fluffier looking, brighter looking. And it will also make the cloud last longer. 
And you can kind of intuitively know this because when the droplets in a cloud start to congeal, the cloud gradually gets darker, and when they get big enough, they fall out as rain. So those are the two effects, the direct scattering effect and what we call the cloud aerosol effect, that scientists postulate we might be able to leverage actively um, and slightly modify the reflectivity of the atmosphere. So I'm going to show you now a highly technical drawing over here. Um, this is actually a, a moderately accurate, <laughs> um, and I'll explain where it's accurate and where it's not, a depiction of the two most promising, thought to be the most promising approaches to slightly increasing the reflectivity of the atmosphere um, and how much reflectivity we might need in order to... Uh, in order to neutralize the heat effects of greenhouse gases. So, um, so what happened uh, a few years ago, first the Royal Society in the UK, and then the National Academy of Sciences in the US, uh, they each looked at various proposals for trying to engineer climate, um, engineer ways of removing greenhouse gases, and engineer ways of increasing the reflection of sunlight to bring heat out of the atmosphere directly. And in both cases, they went through things like ping pong balls on the ocean and plastic sheets on ice and mirrors in space. And they evaluated these techniques for their sort of feasibility and, and potential viability. And they, they identified a couple of them that seemed the most relevant for further research. And those were the ones that, that sort of mimicked certain naturally observed phenomenon to change the reflectivity of the atmosphere. And so the two that they... Um, focused on were one that you've probably heard about a lot, which is putting particles in the stratosphere. The particle, these particles are not actual size. Um, <laughs> so they're very tiny, you wouldn't be able to see them, probably, possibly not even as a contrail. Um, quite tiny particles. So the idea here is putting particles in the stratosphere to reflect sunlight directly, this uh, direct scattering effect. And I'll explain a little bit more about that because I've got lots more pictures uh, to show you. And then the other is the idea of brightening clouds in the troposphere. Um, and in this case, brightening clouds of the ocean using a mist of sea salt from ocean water. Um, so generating tiny particles of sea salt from the water misting into otherwise unpolluted clouds over the ocean, um, and in a concentrated way, actually reflecting a lot of sunlight back out into space. So I'll explain those two now in further detail, uh, because there have been uh, some active efforts to study them, and they start with studying some of the natural processes that are similar to what happens. So this first, this first slide that I'm showing you um, is showing the uh, effects of cloud aerosol cooling today. So one thing that many people aren't, aren't aware of is that we are already brightening the atmosphere with particles, with man-made particles from human emissions. Um, and we're doing this today in the lower atmosphere that we call the troposphere, and we're primarily largely doing it by brightening clouds. But we also have the direct effect. So this chart here is a famous chart that you may have seen um, that's showing the different sources of warming and cooling in the atmosphere generated by human activity. And so the bars um, shooting off to your right are the ones that show where heat uh, forcing is coming from. So you see CO2, um, other greenhouse gases, primarily methane. Um, and we've got something of a competing effect of what ozone does um, in the troposphere versus the stratosphere. 
And then uh, we have these other bars here, which are shooting off to the left, which are actually a cooling effect. And you can see this black line here is demonstrating how much uncertainty there is. You can see there's quite a lot of uncertainty as to how big that cooling effect is. And that cooling effect is coming from that direct scattering of particles and the mixing with clouds. And it's thought to be between 0.5 and 1.2 degrees C. So let that sink in. Our pollution is cooling the planet today somewhere between 0.5 and 1.2 degrees C. And we're likely to lose a lot of that effect as we bring down emissions. And it's a pretty big gap in what we know about how big that effect is. So that idea um, is related to one of the proposals for brightening uh, the atmosphere to generate cooling. So this is a picture of the Pacific West Coast of the United States, and the streaks that you see in the clouds are actually created by emissions from ships. And so this idea of what they call ship tracks in atmospheric science was actually postulated by scientists in the 40s before they had the ability to observe them. And once they set up satellites in the 60s and 70s, they were able to see that actually their theory was true and that particulates from ship emissions, mostly sulfates from bunker fuels, brighten clouds. Today, the, the total amount of uh, shipping emissions over the ocean is thought to cool the planet. And we're about to do an experiment on this because in 2020, we will reduce the amount of those emissions by about 85% under new IMO regulations, which is very good for the health of people on shore. Um, moderately good for greenhouse gases, although they're really focused on the particulates. So if we were in a position to measure it, which we probably are not, we might see a bump in warming of between of 0.1 to 0.2 degrees C from losing this cooling mask. So um, based on that idea, one proposal that was uh, first postulated by a British researcher named John Latham and a Scottish uh, genius engineer named Steve Salter, and that is, his, uh, that is not a real ship. That is a theoretical wind-powered Flettner rotor ship. Um, but the idea is that you would take uh, water from the ocean, distill it, uh, generate tiny particles of mostly salt with a little bit of water uh, into a mist, and those particles would be about 80 nanometers in size, so a little bit like what comes out of an asthma inhaler. Um, and you would need to generate 10 to the 16th particles per second, so quite a big volume. Um, and you would navigate them around the ocean. And you would look for big banks of the type of clouds that are susceptible to brightening in this way, which are in three, exist in three or four parts of the world. And were you to brighten those clouds, maybe 6 or 7% brighter than they started out, you might be able to offset a doubling of CO2, or a couple of degrees of warming. You might be able to do that. Um, and that would represent about 20 to 30% of marine clouds, or about 4 to 5% of the surface area of the ocean. So that is one idea. Um, that idea, because this approach is temporary and localized, you might also postulate doing things at a scale below the scale of the entire planet. Um, where cooling might create a helpful effect. And so one of the things that researchers would like to look at, but haven't had the resources to do, is whether or not there would be approaches to cooling ocean surface temperatures in the Gulf Atlantic region. 
um, in theory, were you to cool ocean surface temperatures uh, for the few months before hurricane season, you might be able to reduce the force of hurricanes. Um, and that sort of physics is relatively well known because of the role of heat in the system. Uh, but we know actually quite little about whether or not this would work. Um, and similarly, with coral reefs, so heat stress is definitely approximate stress to coral reefs. It's happening all over the world. Um, this is a, a recent chart of the alert level associated with uh, coral populations around the world. Um, and and it's, a, it, it's a very sort of stark and dire story. So it's possible that there might be some parts of the world where cloud and atmospheric conditions make it, um, make it uh, possible to cool ocean temperatures in a way that helps sustain corals against heat stress. And the National Academy of Sciences is currently doing a study on sustaining corals, and they've included any and all options, including uh, genetically modifying corals and looking at approaches like this to reduce heat stress. Um, and there's a lot of work that needs to be done to analyze coral systems throughout the world to find out what might work where. But these are like, losing our coral systems would be like losing all of our tropical rainforests if it were on land. So it's actually quite an important problem. So, so that's marine cloud brightening. Uh, it has some interesting characteristics uh, in terms of you know, potential possibilities for use. The research in marine cloud brightening is also of interest to scientists independent of the climate problem because the interactions between clouds and particles are the greatest unknown in climate. They're the biggest reason that we can't predict climate and weather. And the kind of detailed uh, experimentation and close study that we would like to do to know whether we could brighten them to cool the planet is the same type of work we'd like to do to be able to better predict climate and weather. So this research is considered dual purpose. Um, and for that reason, it's actually been slightly prioritized as a, a topic of study. Um, and so now I'm going to talk about the, the big kahuna which is the one you hear about more often, uh, which is the um, approach of putting particles in the stratosphere. And this, uh, the concept for this is based on observations of what happens when very large volcanoes go off. And when Mount tu Pinatubo interrupted, erupted in 1991, it generated a cooling effect for the whole planet. So if a volcano is large enough, it will send particulates all the way up into the stratosphere. They get entrained into the stratosphere, meaning they stay up there. Um, and they'll stay up there for a year or more. And this chart shows the change in temperature. So temperatures dropped over half a degree C. And then they gradually rose back up over the course of 14 or 15 months. So Pinatubo cooled the whole planet. And so based on that idea, uh, it might be possible, in a much more managed way, um, looking for benign materials that are, are the least impactful on the stratosphere, to disperse particles um, around the stratosphere, um, looking at regimes that minimize side effects, and using aircraft, most likely, um, spreading over weeks or months to offset two degrees of warming or more. Um, with particles in the stratosphere. And it's thought that you could do this by making the stratosphere just 1% more reflective. So a little bit of tweaking 
of its light. And so I'm going to show you now, this is a simulation using a model that's the first of its kind in the world. Um, it's the only model that exists that allows you to simulate a managed regime of dispersing particles in different parts of the stratosphere in a regulated way. And this is showing the difference between uh, the projections using one of the big global climate models of business as usual, which is the path that we're on, and the projections, and these are surface temperature projections, and the projections of what it looks like to use stratospheric uh, aerosol injection around the globe, and the comparative result in temperature. This uh, simulation was produced by uh, Simona Tilms and um, Yaga Richter at NCAR, and Doug McMartin at Cornell, uh, and Ben Kravitz at Pacific Northwest National Labs. And it combines a model of injection into the stratosphere with uh, the, the um, GCSM, which is one of the major global climate models. This is version 1.0. And so what we learned, one of the things that we learned from version 1.0 uh, is that there's a lot more we need to do um, to understand, to add in things like more atmospheric chemistry data, um, more ocean interaction, and things like that. But one of the things that we learned about this, um, well, this, before we get to some of the learning, this is a simulation from the same model that shows uh, changes in sea ice at the poles. And what you can see, this is the business-as-usual projection where um, sea ice starts to go away and it doesn't come back. And uh, under the regime with uh, active sunlight reflection, you can see that sea ice goes away, then it starts to come back, and then it remains relatively robustly. Again, this is a model projection in which we want to know more. But one of the th interesting things that we learned from this model projection was about side effects. And so some of you may have seen in the news in the past week that there was a study, uh, big headlines that said doing this kind of stratospheric uh, sunlight reflection will um, impair crop growth around the world. Um, and it is certainly true that one of the side effect risks of doing this is that affecting the quantity or nature of light to the surface. So that is one of the things that you would want to manage carefully if you did it. Volcanoes, when they go off, don't manage that very well. Um, and the study that was quoted was a study of volcano, volcanic data um, and then input into models uh, simulating volcanoes. Um, and so I liken it to uh, a chemotherapy regime where you give everybody all the chemo in their first treatment versus trying to manage the approach so that you minimize side effects. So what they found when they used the model of a managed regime was that the side effect profile was less extreme than when you use a model for volcanoes. Bless you. And, uh, and so, so that's an important finding. Um, and this is showing a little bit more about the side effect profiles. So I talked about um, the impact of light to the surface. And one of the ways that light to the surface gets impacted is the way that the chemistry of what you're putting in the stratosphere mixes with ozone. And it turns out that ozone has a Goldilocks zone, too. So this, the, the Earth likes a certain amount of ozone in the stratosphere, um, not too little, not too much. And so under certain conditions, you can actually get what they call ozone overshoot. So if you have too little ozone, you get too much UV light to the surface. If you have too much ozone, you get not enough. 
So we want to. So one of the important risks that we have is understanding um, the chemistry of the stratosphere, how that affects ozone, and how that relates to light to the surface. Um, and that, so, so that's one of the key side effects. The other side effect that people are concerned about with these techniques, um, and these side effects tend to apply to marine cloud brightening too, but in a different profile, is the effect on precipitation. And overall, it's thought that when you remove a bit, of, a bit more sunlight from the atmosphere and you make it a bit cooler, that overall precipitation will be dampened a little bit. And so you may end up in a situation where precipitation is slightly less than it would have been in pre-industrial conditions, uh, but, but heat is about the same. And so people are better off, but not quite as well off as they would have been in pre-industrial conditions. Another concern is that you get a variable impact. And so different people in different parts of the world have different outcomes. And once you've, once you've done this in a managed way, it's pretty hard to separate those outcomes from what happens in nature. So these are some of the side effects that people are really worried about. And they have to be compared with the risks of what happens under a regime of increased heat. But what we do know is if we, if we can do more research, we can have a better understanding of what, where these side effects sit and a better, um, a better grasp on what our level of uncertainty is. Um, and I'll explain about where research is as we go. But just to give you some relative context, and I'm going to start this off by saying we don't actually really know how much it would cost to do this because so little work has been done. But to give you a sense of the orders of magnitude, if we were to try to go below two degrees by 2050, based on the charts that I showed you, the first number, 44 trillion, that comes from the IPCC. Um, and that's what it costs, according to the IPCC, to stay below two degrees using emissions reduction only. Now, they caveat that by saying you may get lots of savings in terms of fossil fuels and other things. So I'm going to put big caveats on all these numbers and just say this gives you some sense of the, the orders of magnitude. And the second number, what it costs to remove CO2, is based on the new kind of optimistic assessment that you could do it for $100 a ton. Um, and based on $100 a ton, which doesn't quite actually really exist yet. Um, and I put an asterisk here because those technologies aren't quite production ready. But based on that, um, that's cheaper, potentially, than emissions reduction, maybe not. Um, but when we look at sunlight reflection, it's quite a bit cheaper. Um, and I put in here loaded costs based on sort of $50 billion a year with a regime that starts in 2030. Um, and that's a much higher estimate than some other people would quote, but I come from IT infrastructure, so I know you need security, compliance, uh, analytics, and so on. Um, so, just to give you a sense of the relative cost of these things and, and where they sit, um, and that low number is what worries some people about this, to be honest. So, um, so I'm going to talk now about what's needed and where we are. Um, and so I look at this problem as a complex systems problem, like a health problem. We have uh, one patient. Um, patient is planet Earth. Um, our, our state of medicine is about 18th, 19th century. Um, and we're in pretty critical condition. And so we have a complex systems problem. And coming from IT infrastructure again, you know, what we need is data on the various layers of the system. We need good, um, much better tools than we have for analyzing that data. 
um, and looking at the system in a variety of different types of ways. Uh, the good news is we have technologies that we have not applied to this problem yet that exist for other things. So the disruptions in remote sensing, drones, uh, surface, aerial, space, most of that stuff has not been applied to this problem at all. Um, and likewise, with computing and models and analytics, so I worked on a project with uh, Ocean Climate Risk that was taking approaches to studying complex systems in finance and IT and applying them to study ocean climate risk. So one of the ways I look at this is that the full weight and force of what the tech industry knows how to do has not been applied to the problem of understanding the climate system. That's good news, because that's low-hanging fruit. So we could understand the system a lot better and a lot faster. And if we want to intervene in the system, I would argue that we have to. And I've talked to uh, politicians and, um, and people on the left and the right. And what I tell them is that if you're interested in intervening in the climate system, we have to understand it much better than we do today. And we have to make investments in the scientists, the platforms, and the capabilities that we need to understand the Earth system better. It's a prerequisite for any intervention that we do. So that's part of the whole deal here. Um, and in order to do that, we have uh, the mother of all interdisciplinary problems. And so I don't know if you can read this chart, but the disciplines involved go from nanoscale particle generation through you know, localized uh, weather systems all the way up to global climate, data and information systems, civil and environmental risk and control systems, all the way into human and societal operations and the way we make decisions together as a human population. So, so that's a tricky one. Um, and I'm going to argue that we need to do all of the studying that we need to do in the next decade because of the timelines that I pointed out earlier in the conversation. So for me, the question is, how can, we, how can we coordinate an agenda to learn what we need to know about possible options for protecting ourselves from heat risk in the context of the kind of damages that we might be looking at, even if there are only possibilities um, by the middle of the century? And so to that end, there are some different kinds of exploration that we need to do, technologies we need to develop. The aerosol generation, I'll share with, with you guys, and I'll talk a little bit more about the fact that there really aren't uh, research programs today. There are no formal sources of funding in this area. Um, and to my knowledge, the only place in the world where they're developing uh, aerosol technologies to, to try to perform these techniques and understand them is here in Silicon Valley. Um, and it's a team that's comprised of a half a dozen retired engineers, some of whom co-invented inkjet printing in the optical mouse. Um, and they've been working on this problem for six years for their grandchildren without pay. Um, now that work is likely to move into a more formalized setting um, where we can work more actively on different approaches and different ways to scale it up. But the technology is critical to understanding what might be possible and what we're going to feed into our models and analytics. And so alongside the technology for dispersion, we need lots of improvements to our climate models and analytics, and we need specific models and analytics um, that look at these specific types of approaches. 
Um, and I could talk to you a lot about some of the limitations of models and our reliance on them to make decisions about climate. For any of you who've worked on complex systems, you know that a big part of the challenge is looking at the systems in different ways. And there are different ways you poke at the system and analyze the system. And in climate, we've been using primarily simulations, and simulations are particularly bad at picking up the kind of complex system dynamics like abrupt change. And so it's particularly likely that we may be underestimating the kind of changes that we're facing. So we need to improve these badly, and we need to get more systems people using more different ways of looking at the system. And then uh, experiments. So once you have this technology and you've done some modeling work, process-level studies of what happens when you release particles into the atmosphere, how they interact with the cloud, how they flow out into the stratosphere, those are really crucial. At very small scales, they can give you a lot of information to feed into models and estimate what's going to happen. So there are a couple of proposed experiments or experimental programs. Um, this one is a picture of the program at Harvard, which is the most well-funded program in the world for looking at brightening the atmosphere. Um, it's headed by uh, a, a well-regarded, well-known scientist named David Keith. It's an interdisciplinary program that's been trying to look at the societal aspects of doing this as well. But they're proposing experiment in the stratosphere using a balloon uh, where they would release a number of different kinds of materials, only a liter each. So they'll be very lucky if they can measure what comes out. Um, but they're looking to determine some of the initial chemistry of the interactions with those different kinds of materials in the stratosphere, and maybe something about the way they disperse. And that would be the first step in a very long sequence of studies, um, both in modeling and, and in experiments and in data, to try to get a grasp on um, whether this would work, what material you would want to use, and what kind of bounds you could put on the risks of it. So that program is, is happening. Um, they don't, I don't believe they have a definitive date for that experiment, but I think they hope to do it sometime in the next year. Um, and the University of Washington is the home of the program, uh, which is not funded, and so consists of researchers working in their voluntary spare time, together with the engineers who've been working in their retirement. But what they hope to do is a sequence of steps that will go from generating a single plume over land, a plume over the ocean, and then finally a patch of ocean and clouds that they would brighten with multiple ships and try to measure changes in the reflectivity. And that whole sequence that they would like to do to measure changes in reflectivity of a patch of ocean and sky, which would be your first experiment on whether you can brighten a cloud, they think will take eight to 10 years to do that sequence. I've pressed them on it. <laughs> like, well, if we have money, we can go faster. Okay. Um, so, but, but to give you a sense, both of these experiments that I described are below the level where the EPA would even engage them for a review. So they don't contain physical risks um, with regard to the kinds of parameters that we have today for putting things into the atmosphere. Um, but people are worried about them for other reasons, like the precedents that they might set um, or the societal forces they might set into motion. Um, but if we want to pursue these things, 
Um, and, and I'm very interested that we have knowledge and information for society to make decisions about. Then there's a sequence of things that we need to do. Um, and, and a little bit of that sequence has started. But as I mentioned, today, around the world, there are no formal sources of funding for this work. If you are a researcher that wants to work in this field, there is nowhere to apply for a grant unless you work in social sciences. So if you want to work on technology or the scientific aspects of this, there, there is nowhere to go. Um, there is a program in China, a modeling program, um, that was... Uh, actually founded by a British researcher who married a Chinese woman, so it was not a strategic program in China. But in China, they also have the largest weather modification program in the world. And they recently launched a rainmaking effort that's three times the size of Spain. So one of the things we have to consider is um, whether we in Silicon Valley or in the U.S. or in the Western world decide to research these kinds of approaches, whether or not others do. Um, but to move forward, one of the things that's been missing, partly because uh, there's no funding or kind of standing body of researchers in this space, is a, an agenda. Is, you know, what are all of the things that we need to study and what does that look like? So the National Academy of Sciences um, is soon to announce a study to establish a research agenda and an approach to governing that research so that it's transparent and it has oversight and it can avoid maybe some of the societal concerns that people have. So this is kind of where we are at maybe defining an agenda. From there, we need to establish research programs, build ecosystem of researchers here in, in the U.S. and around the world, um, educate and engage people about what these things are. Um, and ultimately, maybe a decade from now, we might have some information about whether these things are feasible, um, how we would characterize their uncertainty around their risks, and whether there is anything at all we might recommend for, um, for readiness as far as possible reduction of heat. So thinking about things that way, there's a bit of a coordination activity required. Uh, so we have a research, there, there are a number of players involved in the possibility of exploring these things on behalf of society. The research community is a big part. A government's a really important part um, because you don't go too very far in engaging the atmosphere um, before government resources come into play, and you don't go very far before government authority comes into play. So that's an important part. And uh, technology and business, um, and I'm somewhat unique in the category for thinking that the technology industry and technology people could play a much larger role, and particularly a role in accelerating how well we understand climate. For those of you from tech, there's a big DevOps gap. Climate models and climate data, this is the biggest consumer of compute in, in the world. And uh, they, lack, they, they lack automation to make it run on the infrastructure, so that's just a pet peeve of mine. Lots of opportunities to accelerate the adoption of what we know and what we have. Um, philanthropy, I believe, will, will play an important role in catalyzing things getting started um, and in complementing whatever government efforts do. Um, civil society is really important. A lot of people have a lot of concerns about this, um, which I'm going to describe. And so the NGOs and the groups that look after 
um, the overall welfare and justice of people in the world are really important, and media and the general public. Um, and I would love for media to cover this area a little bit le less sensationally, um, but wouldn't we all in our respective fields? Um, and so what are people concerned about? Um, there are a lot of concerns, and these concerns have generally been fairly instrumental in the reason that there is no research funding for this, either in government or in philanthropy. And uh, one of the biggest concerns is this idea of moral hazard, that beginning to develop these capabilities or beginning to research these capabilities opens up the idea that we can take our foot off the gas in reducing emissions, and uh, that we set in motion a sort of idea that, um, that there is an easy way out. I would argue, based on my decade of looking at this stuff, that looking at it closely does not tell you that you don't need to reduce emissions. It tells you that you've got a very narrow band of, of temperature suppression you might be able to do, and it's absolutely imperative to stop emitting. Really, honestly. You heard it from me. <laughs> Um, so, so I, so I think, um, I think the moral hazard uh, question is one that that's a good one to have a debate about, um, because sometimes that moral hazard comes in as soon as the idea is out there, um, and more research may just just be helpful versus harmful. So that's an important one. Uh, another one which I didn't realize coming to the space that that was kind of close to home for people was the relationship between man and nature. And the idea that actually um, these kinds of techniques move us away from a natural system versus towards the kind of natural system that's more unimpeded by man. And that's a tricky one. Um, David Grinspoon, who wrote a book, great book called Earth in Human Hands, talks about the fact that you know, the intelligent species on the planet have been altering it for a long time. Um, even before industrial times. So whether we apply our intelligence and have to manage it more actively is a question. But that is, that is one that um, hits pretty hard. And then the other one here on the left, which is also a big one, really big one, which is can we move forward even in researching these things if we can't figure out a just way to make decisions about them? And uh, I'm hoping that we could convince people to do those activities in parallel so that we have more knowledge as we go and when it comes to the point of making decisions, we've got more information to base them on. But um, there's definitely a debate about whether we should be doing anything at all until we've figured out a just way, participatory way for people to make decisions. And it's partly based on the fact that a lot of people did not have a say in the greenhouse gas situation to begin with a lot of the people that suffer from it first. Um, and as a side point, just because I didn't raise it sooner, um, one of the advisors to Silver Lining is a woman named uh, Joyashree from India, Joyashree Roy. Um, she's a senior economist in India, and she was telling me that it's forecast that by 2025, in Calcutta, where she's from, there will be no days of the year where it's safe to work outside. No days of the year where it's safe to work outside. And that will be happening in a number of places around the world. So this question of justice uh, comes up a lot um, with regard to this. Then uh, we have some uh, on the sort of slightly different way of looking at the problem. Can we move ourselves into a way of thinking about relative risk versus absolutes around climate issues? 
In other words, we may need to expand the portfolio of things that we're looking at into things that have more real or perceived risk. Can we handle the notion of relative risk? Because we know as heat rises, the risks continue to get bigger on that side of the equation. Um, but it's been hard to have discussions about relative risk. Um, and Stuart, who's a nuclear advocate, is a person, you know, people on this sort of eco-modernist or eco-pragmatist side of things are frustrated by the fact that things that are perceived to have risk, are, we're unable to weigh them against the growing risks of heat and climate. And finally, and I guess this is my perspective on the problem, working for so many years as I've ha I have with engineers and business people, is a focus on the outcomes. And so I'm very interested in minimizing suffering um, and maintaining natural systems for the next 100 years. And so I tend to look at the problem from the point of view of that, which is an outcomes point of view. Whether that's the right point of view or the point of view everyone is taking, um, you know, that's kind of a debate. But these are the debates that go on, and it's not hard to start talking about this and wind up with a discussion about human nature and civilization and whether or not we all deserve the planet that we've got. So uh, it gets very, uh, very esoteric very quickly. Um, but we have intervened to solve big-scale environmental problems before. Um, so my parents are from central Nebraska. This picture at the top is the shelter belt. How many of you have heard of the Great Plains Shelter Belt Program in the US? A few of you. Excellent. Anybody watch my testimony? Um, anyway, so uh, in, in the 30s, um, in the Dust Bowl period, uh, FDR was looking at what could be done to address the fact that there was a desertification going on in the, in the Great Plains in the US, um, that poor farming practices of the settlers had, had basically eroded the land such that we had this big dust bowl. And so they implemented this massive tree planting program. And if you drive through the Midwest, you'll see these lines of trees through Nebraska, Kansas, everywhere. And, and they were planted in a 200-mile wide stretch from Canada down to Texas. And it was a very concerted effort, and it was considered to be very successful. And it was the biggest, it's the biggest environmental engineering program in US history. And it happens to have been an atmospheric engineering program, too. So, uh, so that's one example. And the second example uh, here is um, the ozone problem in the Montreal Protocol. And for those of you at Stanford, you know you have George Schultz there. And it was actually Republicans uh, in office at the time that the ozone problem was uh, highlighted and addressed. Um, and it was a collaboration with industry and government that looked at what chemicals they could use to replace the ones that were killing ozone, and they perceived it to be an existential problem, and they addressed it that way. So it is possible for decision makers in society to come together and say we have an existential problem across parties and across boundaries. Usually it involves some, some technical expertise, some scientific expertise, but it is possible to address that kind of problem, and that was also considered to be wonderfully successful. And there was a recent study in the past uh, six months or so um, describing that success. So, whoops, jumping ahead to the punchline. Uh, so this is a cartoon by Bjorn Lombard uh, of where, where we might land. Um, 
But we are an intelligent species, um, and, and for those of us who, who are prone to despair, I say, look, we're all still here. And, uh, and, and we have a wonderful capacity to, um, uh, to solve and create, right? And so I, I look at it as, um, in this way, that we have one spaceship, and all the people are on it. This is our ship. And like Apollo 13, failure is not an option. So I think that if we focus, we may need to, you know, science a little bit of this thing um, and pull some additional tools out of the toolbox. Ultimately, our goal is to get really healthy natural systems. But, you know, we, we have some possibilities, and I hope you all will support the idea of exploring them. Thank you for coming out tonight, and uh, please have a cocktail. Thank you, Kelly. So, we're, uh, we're a bit late on time, so if you want to just pull out your stool, no, no it's all good. Uh, but we, uh, so we're going to go a little bit over so we can get a few questions in here. And I'm going to get the first one. Uh, can I get you a, a delicious uh, interval uh, beverage? Yes, thank you. Um, so, uh, First uh, question that I want to ask you. So you are you're doing amazing work. Uh, you know you're taking on this advocacy role that's so important, and you're so it's it's so kind of factually and project based rather than just dealing. I think I think you're dealing with kind of the the realities of the situation where a lot of the imagination goes to the further reaches of when a global system is implemented. But we are there are so many steps that take decades to get there. That's doing it. Um, characterize for us, so you, you spoke to Congress uh, last year as we talked about, you're speaking to leaders in industry and in a lot of different places. As you're doing this tour, who are the people you're talking to? What kind of reactions you're getting? Um, is, does everyone even agree that, that climate change is happening? What, what sort of challenges are you running there? Can you just characterize from your kind of world tour on this? Um, what's, what are the types of conversations you're having and what, with what types of folks? Um, sure. So I haven't done a world tour. Um, I've been most focused on the U.S. Um, and the U.K. a little bit. Um, but I have spent some time, uh, particularly in political circles um, in the U.S. And there are a couple of really important things I think people should know. Firstly, um, the U.S. has the largest climate research infrastructure on Earth by quite a stretch. And all of that infrastructure and people are still there. Apart from the EPA, there are six other agencies with major climate research programs, and they're all intact. In fact, in the last budget, they got slight increases. So I, I, I talk about it kind of like a cake, where you have you know, the cake, which is the sort of substantive uh, you know, science infrastructure of the US, and then you have the frosting, which is kind of what we hear about attitudes towards these things um, coming from the administration. My experience on both the left and right is that there's a lot of concern about climate. I haven't met anyone from any party who doesn't acknowledge that the earth is warming. Um, different characterization as to how severely, different, maybe different thoughts about what the cause is. But if you're talking about heat stress on the climate system, they're all seeing it in their states, in their districts. They're interested in it. And one of the things about these kind of uh, technical solutions is they're a way for people on the right to engage with the problem that's politically acceptable. So they're a good entry point. 
Um, and yeah, as you said, you haven't gone around the world, but I think you are tracking uh, things a lot. And, and <laughs> you touched on China, um, and, and I know you're aware of, and I think one of the things we talked about earlier, so the total amount of money in terms of what, what's been made available here in the US, and can you contrast that with, with other countries, and then, and then specifically maybe a little bit about China and how you see sure. them approaching this area? So I'm gonna differentiate between um, funds for social science and funds for science and technology research, R&D. Um, because in the social sciences, there, there's a lot more money to look at the problem, and in, in science and R&D, very little. So the program at Harvard, I think this is public information, they've raised about $10 million to date, almost all of it private. Um, and unclear as to whether those sources of money are continuous. They're not strategic, so they're not places other people can go for money in this area. In China, this program that they have, which is modeling-centric, is a $3 million initial program, so not very big. So we're talking, you know, of the, of the funds that we know of, maybe in the past several years, $15 million generously, which effectively at a global scale is effectively zero if we look at the portfolio. So that is a big, you know, for me, one of the key areas to address is it wouldn't take much in terms of a small increment in the portfolio to add a huge amount of knowledge and possible optionality in this area. And, and sorry, how much of that was social sciences versus actual so like the, technology the, R&D? The 15 million is technology R&D. I think the social sciences amount, I, I don't have a good cumulative amount for that, but that's ongoing. Ben, you would characterize that as uh, what's the, the social discussion around uh, climate change or what's the impact So the category is usually or? referred to as governance. And so it's looking essentially at oversight and control of these things, a lot of the societal questions around decision-making. So um, law. Uh, so there is a program at American University, at UCLA, at Potsdam in Germany, at Oxford in the UK. Um, and I'm sure I'm missing some. And then there are, there are researchers. And there are a number of foundations where you can apply for grants to study governance of sunlight reflection or geoengineering, but you cannot apply for grants for the science. Um, and I want to just, uh, just a little bit of housekeeping. You mentioned um, uh, NCAR and CISL. Can you just say who they are? And also you mentioned Slack, and Slack's close, close to here, sure. but can you just explain yeah, uh, what they're so, doing with um, it? NCAR is the National Center for Atmospheric Research, and there are, the agency that they work in is the National Science Foundation, NSF. Um, and you can think of NCAR as big locus of climate modeling in, in the U.S. Um, the other agencies that are salient are the Department of Energy. The Department of Energy does a lot of work in the troposphere. Remember, they did a lot of work in the atmosphere around nuclear bombs and things like that. Um, and there are big CITES Pacific Northwest National Labs, which is the locus for climate research within the Department of Energy. Um, and so Department of Energy is also relevant because they run the supercomputing systems that these big climate models run on. As far as SLAC, that's the Stanford Linear Accelerator Center, and they're only tangentially related to this problem because they're working at the atomic and subatomic level, um, but they're just undergoing an upgrade. So for those of you who don't know what they do there, they shoot a sort of X-ray photon beam at um, molecules and atoms, and they take pictures at uh, subatomic scales in a billionth of a second. 
um, to determine what's happening in those basic processes. And they're about to upgrade it so it will be 10,000 times more powerful. And they can research everything from energy to materials to drugs, and, and they have teams of researchers coming through from around the world who are expected to get Nobel Prizes for what they learn. And so when you see things like that, you think, okay, it's just a matter of time. Um, but that's what Slack is, and I recommend going for a visit if you can. Um, so let's go back to the model. So we talk about models all the time. The model says this, the model says that, and we always talk about models plural. So you, you're in a great position to, to, to unpack this for us. How many models are we really talking about? Do those tend to be overlapping and showing the same thing? Is there great contention? I mean, we've had a couple other speakers on this topic, and sometimes it seems like um, certain researchers are very bought into a particular model and kind of, it's almost like allegiance to that model and, and that that might even be a problem in terms of researchers coming together on certain things. I don't know, but is, how, how would you kind of characterize that and are they, are they tending to point in the same direction or, or are there kind of fundamental differences there we should know about? Um, so that's a big topic. Yeah. Um, and there are, it's okay, I'll give you 20 seconds. There are, there are a couple things I'll say. Um, because because I understand models and simulations coming from a different direction. Um, and so some of the things that surprise me about cl climate models is uh, um, a, lot of the, um, a lot of the policy that's based on climate model work um, and a lot of the generalizations that are drawn from climate models come from an average of models. And so they will take the average of the range of model findings. Now, if you're an engineer, you're looking for the most accurate model not the average of all the models, right? You're very concerned with the, the most accurate reflection of the system. But in climate model work, they're as concerned about replicability, so can models be reproduced by somebody else, and sometimes that leads them to be more simplified, than they are of the specific representation of the system. So they want experience. So there are a couple of these dynamics, the average of models, the replicability factor over the sort of accuracy factor that people don't realize, say, you know, these models are they're not always optimized to be 100% reflections of the actual system. They're, they're optimized to study things in different ways. So when you take an average of all the models, and Ken Caldera just published some work this year about mapping uh, recent data from you know, different aspects of the Earth system onto model projections and saying the most accurate models were the ones that gave the worst projections. And so... So, so they're, they're good at showing what's happening right now, but not good at showing the future? Is that from... So well, they're all not equally good, firstly, okay. um, but we're treating them as if we can average them out, okay. right? And so we may not be doing enough comparison to data with these models. Um, so that's the first point. The second point is that simulation models use processes, countless millions of processes, and complex systems don't lend themselves very well to process level analysis. And the things those models tend to miss are the things where one plus one doesn't equal two, it equals three. Where, the part that, where something happens that's bigger than the sum of the parts of the system. And one of those kinds of things is abrupt change. So, you know, will that coral system suddenly die? Will that 
ice sheet collapse. That is specifically, and Phil Rash, who's the chief climate scientist at Pacific Northwest National Labs, will tell you that the models are particularly poor at abrupt changes in the system. And in theory, that could happen the other direction, too, like a new technology comes online and changes. For sure. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. The, in the human systems, the same way. And if I started my career in economics, it's a commonly known problem in economic forecasting, right? And you keep trying to find different ways of, of coming at it. And so one of the things we did in the ocean climate um, study was look at more probabilistic ways of looking at the system and the relationships of things in the system. And so we need to make sure that we're, we're using all the tools at our disposal for how you look at complex systems, not just particular kinds of models. And that when we are using the models, that we're, that we're constantly testing them against data and we're looking for the models that are the most accurate reflections of the real system versus the average across different approaches. Um, and thanks for your patience, everybody. We're not going to have time, obviously. There are going to be a ton of questions, I know. Um, you are going to stick around, right? As yes. always, uh, she's going to be here, and we really encourage you to come up here. Um, we will, we're going to be here for a while, so we'd love for you to come up and ask your question. Um, Joe, we're going to get a question from you in a second. I have one last one I want to ask you, and it's about a number you put up on the board uh, for uh, $750 billion, um, in 2030. So remind us of what the, so if we spent 750 billion, then we would get what outcome by 2030? So firstly, I don't know if you caught in the slide, but I put two question marks next to it. Not just one, two. Um, because my meta point is that we really don't know yet what it would cost. Sure. And so I use a, a much bigger estimate than other people are using, which is $50 billion a year in a production level scenario. Um, and $50 billion a year, assuming that we started in 20, that we did our 10 years of research. Yeah, so, so that what I wanted to ask yeah. you was, w walk us through how we get to that. What does that mean? If that's, in 2030, we get that uh, outcome, what does that mean we have to start doing tomorrow? Or what are, what are the assumptions that are built into? So the assumptions that are built into it means that tomorrow, we start defining a research agenda and we start scaling up funding of researchers in different pieces of that agenda over the next decade, specific to sunlight reflection and these sort of active interventions. And alongside that, we're making investments in improving our ability to understand the climate system. So we're upgrading the supercomputers, we're adding more cloud computing in, we're moving these next generation remote sensing so we get higher resolution, higher frequency observations, and we're keeping all the scientists employed and we, and we stop insulting them. Um, and so we're doing those two things in parallel over the next decade. And then a decade from now, what's the most likely thing is people come back and say, well, we're not sure, but here's what we learn. Here's what we think might be feasible. Here's how we would characterize the uncertainty around it. Here's how we would characterize the risks. Here's what you might think about making investments in to scale up, and then it may take another five to ten years to scale. And so, so does, am I right to say the, the assumption is investing more money in the next year or so, like on the millions of dollars sort of front to get this started, and then how long does it take from there to actually having not just because we have lots of theoretical, lots of, lots of images and lots of models, but actually testing something um, 
how many years is it from today before even doing a small scale test? Depends on what you mean happen. by a test. Okay. Um, so if you take cloud brightening, for example, which is a really cool example because you just want to put some mist, literally, of seawater into the air. Um, the first step is to do indoor testing, and they like to use something like the NASA Ames hangar and simulate different humidity and wind conditions and do a bunch of that. And then from that, you might have an apparatus, a sprayer, a research tool that you can use. And that would take the first round of doing all that stuff might take you two years. It's where you get a research-grade sprayer you could take out on the ocean. Then you go out on the ocean, then you do single plume tests, and you need some drones or airplanes to measure the chemistry and things that are happening. And then once you've done a few of those, you go out and do a patch of ocean and sky. And by that time, you're at eight years, maybe. So you could accelerate that stuff. And I know you're shaking your head because you're thinking, you, and plus you, you need to replicate it a lot. And so because you have seasonal variations, you have regional variations, you have all kinds of things going on. So yes, you would want to accelerate that. But right now, there's a lot we could learn, even in single-digit millions or slightly low double-digit millions, over the next couple of years just getting researchers ramped up. And I wouldn't recommend, for example, doing like a moonshot or a Manhattan project because right now we don't have a research base. So we need to kind of prime the pump, get some researchers working in the field, get some of these smaller scale activities going, lots more modeling work done, and then see what makes sense to grow. Um, so was there a question? Uh, any questions in the back? Joe, did you have somebody? Sorry, okay. All right, well, um, let's... Can I take one or two? Yeah, um, there's, there's one. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, what can you say about what can you say about the relative time frames of both the problem and the solution? So if you are too aggressive with the particulates, presumably it can get out of control. Or you mentioned a little bit with the moral hazard, if uh, how, to what extent the, uh, the problem is already growing out of control. Um, could you say a little bit about to what extent there's data behind how either of those sides are developing? Um, so I think that, the, for me, the meta point is like there's a decade of work to do before you would consider doing anything at a scale that would impact a climate or people at all. And that you would have tons more information to say whether that was a good idea or not. And so where you sit on the moral hazard side is you know, whether the activities associated with generating more information generate more hazard or whether the information helps you. And I think that's a question for debate. All right, a uh, quick question and then... Uh, yeah. Hi. <clears throat> Hi, my name is Wayne. Hi, Wayne. in my throat. Um, the politics of getting people to recognize how serious, how literally deadly serious this problem is for all of humanity and the rest of living things in the planet is my concern. If we have the will, like we did when we entered World War II and we mobilized our economy, we could change things possibly in a way that would have an effect on this. 
How do we bring about a political awareness that that is the level of problem we're facing? It's actually worse than that. But that's the kind of level we have to get people convinced that this climate change is. Anthropogenic climate change is the worst existential problem humans have ever created. So I agree with that, and, and, and I would throw out the idea that proposing solutions like this and, and having people say, no, this is where we are, are a bit of a wake-up call in themselves. And so it's possible that dampening that idea tells people that, well, hey, you know, we still... So my experiences in talking about these solutions, it's an eye-opener in terms of the severity of the problem. Um, and it's really important to talk about that severity. I think sometimes that discussion is muted by the fact that we don't want to find ourselves in a position where the portfolio of the things that we hope will work no longer will. And so, you know, opening up this discussion maybe allows us to be a little bit more candid and realistic about where we actually are, potentially. But my experience, too, is the, these more technical approaches are a safe space for having the conversation for people for whom some of the more traditional ways of talking about the problem don't work. And so opening up that dialogue and saying, look, this is where we are with regard to heat. Regardless of how you think we got here, what you think we need to do about it. And then opening up that dialogue. So I'm, you know, for me, I'm here as an optimist to say, hey, Society has done this before. We did it in World War II. We're all in this together. And by the way, I have a pet peeve about this idea of winners and losers. I think that has one of the biggest moral hazards in the climate equation is the idea that there are winners, that there are people in Silicon Valley investing in building bunkers and not investing in solving the actual problem. And I don't think anybody wins. And so the idea that there are winners and losers maybe creates complacency in developed countries and, and with the very people who could push the problem the hardest. And so we need to talk about the fact that in what's coming here, there are no winners, really. Um, any win that you think you have is very transient. And so, you know, if we can all get the sense that we're in this together, like you said, I, I think that's very key. But I think it's possible. I'm an optimist. And uh, we're going we're gonna to have to close. I, I just want to invoke a couple things that you said uh, at the beginning, the, the look at those kids, and then the fact that it's grandfathers who are one of the most active uh, people that are doing this. Um, it's a reminder of what we think about it long now. We're trying to be good ancestors. And what does that mean? It means the decisions we're making today, whether in technology or consumption or what have you, um, there, there are other people in the room and there are the people that are gonna come after us. So we are making decisions that they're gonna have to live with and um, we need to weigh their needs uh, in the balance with it. Um, Kelly, thank you so much for a great talk. Thanks, Michael. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.